Good morning, good afternoon, depending on your time zone. Hello and welcome to Student Affairs Live, the online learning community for student affairs educators. I'm your host, Keith Edwards, filling in as guest host for Heather Shea. My pronouns are he, him, his, and I'm a speaker, consultant, and coach. You can find more about me at keithedwards.com. Today, I'm connecting with three scholars who have focused on what makes living learning communities successful and effective for students. We'll be discussing lessons that practitioners can use to improve the student outcomes from LLCs. We welcome your comments, questions, and participation. Follow along on the back channel and tweet to the hashtag HigherEdLive. Thanks to Erica Thompson for her great work behind the scenes helping out with the back channel today. In a moment, I'll introduce you to the panelists who have joined me today. But first, we need to acknowledge and thank those who make Student Affairs Live possible. Student Affairs Live is a part of the Higher Ed Live Network, and you can tune into episodes with regular hosts, Heather Shea and Tony Duty on Wednesdays at 1 p.m. Eastern Time. If you're unfamiliar with past episodes, we highly recommend you check out and favorite the archive link that we're tweeting out now. Higher Ed Live is produced by M. Stoner, a digital-first agency committed to tailored solutions that drive real results. Have you ever wondered what prospective teens are thinking about when they receive and read or ignore your institution's recruitment marketing? The third study in the myth-busting series is partnerships with sponsors NRCCUA, or NACUA, is the first to focus on the complete enrollment marketing mix. The research will uncover the best marketing channels and communication preferences that have the biggest influence on prospective teens' perceptions of your institution. Sign up now and receive early access to the research results and white paper results uh, being released later this month. And we're getting a tweet out about that now as well. Student Affairs Live is also exclusively sponsored by ACPA College Student Educators International. ACPA believes that Student Affairs Live is one of the many ways you can be innovative with your own professional development. Register today, book your hotel, and start finding a flight for ACPA 18 in Houston. We're getting a link out to you via Twitter, uh, so you can uh, go ahead and register. So our topic for today is uh, living learning communities. Uh, most post-secondary institutions use living learning communities as a tool for recruitment, engagement, and retention. Current research illustrates that solely having an LLC is insufficient as a means toward realizing these outcomes. In today's conversation, we'll discuss proven strategies for helping students achieve outcomes often associated with LLCs and provide recommendations, particularly for design, delivery, and assessment. So let's get on with the conversation. We want to welcome all of our uh, viewers and those listening, as well as our panelists. In a moment, I'll have our panelists introduce themselves uh, you can find more about their details uh, on our website. But first, I want to mention, many of you sports fans saw the SEC, SEC do battle on Monday night for the College Football National Championship between Alabama and Georgia. Here today, we have a Big Ten battle of our own. Uh, Karen Inkless uh, has undergrad from Northwestern, a PhD from Michigan, worked at the University of Maryland, which wasn't in the Big Ten at the time, but is now, where she had the unfortunate responsibility of advising a doctoral student named Keith Edwards for a couple of years. Johnny Jessup Banger is a proud graduate of Michigan State, which I think is doing pretty well in basketball this year. And Matt Mayhew comes to us from previously at Michigan and now at Ohio State, which I'm sure all of us can recognize is very complicated. So with those big ten uh, bona fides out of the way, uh, we will we will move on to our, our showdown here today. Uh, if we could have just each of you give us a short introduction and share your pronouns, and uh, Karen will begin with you. Sure. Thanks, Keith. Hi, everybody. Hi, everybody. I'm Karen Kurtzich-Inkelis. I am an associate professor in the Curry School of Education at the University of Virginia. 
and I'm the principal investigator for the National Study of Living Learning Programs. And I think we're over to Matt. Hello, everybody. My name is uh, Matt Mayhew. I'm the Flesher Professor of Higher Education at the Ohio State University. I'm still getting used to that. Um, if you see the Gmail pop up with my picture, that is my partner's Gmail account because of course mine doesn't work as well as hers does. My uh, pronouns go uh, he, him, and his. And I am the director of what we're now calling the Assessment of Collegiate Residential Environments and Outcomes, uh, formerly uh, the NSLLP. All right, and over to Jody. Good afternoon, everybody. My name is Jody Jessup Anger, and my pronouns are she, her, hers. I'm Associate Professor of Higher Education at Marquette University. And my first experience with a living learning community was a, a, as a hall director in a hall with an engineering, in an engineering living learning community. And it got me very curious about living learning communities and what makes them work. And so because of that, I've spent the last 13 years doing research on these communities, both in graduate school and since I became a professor at Marquette. That's awesome. Uh, Jody, you're reminding me that when I was an RA way back in the day, I was uh, an RA for two years with a living learning community tied to a, a first year seminar. And when I was at Colorado State, uh, an alma mater we both share, I uh, worked with a, a natural sciences living learning community. And, and I think that's why um, I connected with Karen when I came to Maryland, I was interested in continuing some of that research. So it's great to see uh, how this has continued to evolve and expand. I learned so much when I was in that process and so much has changed about living learning communities. I think the thing that I have always wondered is uh, what is and what is not a living learning community. So uh, as we begin this conversation, maybe we'll, we'll start there. Uh, how do you all define a living learning community for your research um, and what qualifies and what doesn't? And maybe, maybe Karen, and you can help frame this for us. Sure, Keith. <clears throat> Sorry, I forgot to mention too that my pronouns are she, her, and hers. So in order to define what a living learning community is and isn't, we need to back up a little bit to talk about why they became so popular. Uh, <clears throat> and so in the 1980s, about 1980s, 1990s, there, was a, there were increasing calls to increase the quality of undergraduate education from the public, from the government, et cetera. And one of the more popular interventions that universities introduced were living learning communities. Um, and because they were seen as a way to try to improve undergraduate education, they sprang up everywhere, all over the country, in all shapes and sizes, forms and themes, um, and unfortunately, degrees of quality. <laughs> and so what we came out with in the early 2000s were just a plethora of different kinds of programs that were calling themselves living learning communities. And so enter the National Study of Living Learning Programs, the NSLOP, which was the first national study of its kind to try to really understand what goes on with living learning communities. One of our first goals was to try to catalog all the different types and then come up with a definition of what we felt that they were. Um, they differed wildly. There were over 600 different living learning communities represented in the NSLOP, and they obviously were very different from one another. Um, but they did share a few common characteristics that, well, they morphed into what we now were use as our working definition of what an LLC is. And so let me tell you quickly what they are. Um, LLCs typically group students together in a residence hall. They offer shared academic experience for their students and they provide co-curricular learning activities for student engagement with their peers. And it's important to unpack those just a little bit more. So yes, it has to have a residential component. If there is no residential component, uh, that is not an LLC, it's an LC or a learning community. This also means that housing and res life will play an integral part in the success of the program. 
There should be an academic experience that the students gravitate around. Uh, it should not be a social experience or a hobby. It should be an academic experience. And consequently, there should be an academic unit that is also integrally involved in, in the community. And then finally, the co-curricular offering should uh, be based on the theme and designed particularly for those participants and not just for the students living in the residence hall. So those are the three main characteristics of what a living learning community is, but there's so much more involved in it than that, which I think we're going to get to in the mm -hmm. course of this talk. So you kind of mentioned some of the things that would make it not a living learning committee, right? If, if there's not a living component, if there's not a uh, in the residence hall component, uh, then it's just a learning community. Would it also be the case if there wasn't an academic component, if it was a, a community living in a residence hall on a particular floor that was maybe maybe focused on community service, but there wasn't a course or something like that, that would fall outside the bounds of a learning community? So that's how we define it, and that's how uh, Jody and I actually are authors of a book along with Mimi Benjamin and Matt Wierzynski. And the four of us have decided that, yes, there must be an academic component to the program or it shouldn't be called a living learning community. So grouping people together because they all like to play chess or something like that. Well, it, it seems like a perfectly reasonable way to group students together in a residence hall. It's not a living learning community. So that would just be a living community. <laughs> yeah. Or maybe or maybe a theme house. Sometimes theme those house, are yeah, referred to as theme houses. Like sure, sure. Well, great. Thanks for, for helping frame that for us. I, I think we want to shift now over to uh, really the focus of this, which is uh, the design, the delivery, and the assessment. Um, so Karen, uh, would you like to continue on sharing with us um, the design and, and maybe a little bit about best practices? Sure. Yeah. So I'm up again, and I mentioned the book that Jody and I are part of. <clears throat> but that book really, uh, what it focuses on is a best practices model of it's been based on the research that I and Jody and Matt and Mimi have all been doing over the past decade. And based upon the results of our work, we've put together a best practices model that we think really exemplifies what an effective living learning community looks like. Um, I'm gonna go a little low tech right now. <laughs> I'm gonna put up a piece of paper that shows the model, but I, I understand that Erica's gonna tweet it out as well. Yep. So feel free to either follow along this way, the, the very low tech way, and I apologize for my crummy $1.50 clipboard, but hey, it works. <laughs> But at any rate, this is the model. Um, there's two important things to make to be aware of in this model. It's in the shape of a pyramid on a purpose because the levels of the pyramid are built off each other. So, sorry, I'm looking at my picture and I realize I'm too close. <laughs> so, uh, you can't go to the higher levels of the pyramid unless you satisfy the lower levels or the ones below it first. And then each component, each one of these blocks in the model, were all based upon empirical evidence that we've been gathering over the past decade or so. So the reason why it's shaped in the pyramid is very much like Maslow's hierarchy. If you're familiar with Maslow's hierarchy, it's, it's a, the, the needs that a human has in order to function effectively in society. Maslow's first, mo first or base level is basic needs like sleep, air, water, food, things like that. And he argues you can't get to the higher level things like love and self-esteem and identity until you've handled the basic needs. Uh, we think the same way in terms of living learning communities, that you can't have effective academic and co-curricular environments unless you have a solid infrastructure, which is the first level of the pyramid. So I'm very, very quickly going to go through the model. And if there's any questions about the model, please go ahead and tweet or chat them out. But nevertheless, here goes a really brief and succinct uh, summary of the model. So we start on the very first level, the infrastructure model, uh, infrastructure level. It begins with clear goals and objectives. It's the cornerstone of the entire model because all of the other components must align with the goals and objectives of the program. So if a living learning community is, doesn't have clear goals and objectives, it's going to be having problems from the very get-go. 
Then there must be a collaboration between housing and res life and an academic unit, which kind of harkens back to the definition that we just gave a few minutes ago. But the nature of that collaboration really depends on institutional culture. We can definitely talk about that more as time goes on. Then finally, the last level of the infrastructure level is academic, I'm sorry, adequate resources. That includes physical resources, financial resources, and human resources. If those parts of your community are well-established, then we can move up to the second level, the academic environment. And that includes first courses for credit. And here again, here's where the academic piece comes in. We feel that in a living learning community needs to have academic courses, and those courses need to be offered for credit. That's one way in which you fulfill the academic mission of the LLC. Then we have faculty involvement. Uh, in particular, we use faculty advising because we believe faculty involvement, no matter how it's included in the community is important. But in particular, the ones that seem to be the most efficacious have to do with advising. And that's mostly because most LLCs are geared toward first and second year students. Uh, and for the most part, first and second year students, while they, you know, they may be more sophisticated than they were in yesteryear, they still have some, and uh, what's the word? Fear and trepidation when it comes to dealing with faculty. <clears throat> so it could very well be that the way that they want to interact first with faculty is a much more formal and interactional, interactional way like advising. This could then pave the way for a more deep and sustaining mentoring relationship, but it should start at least with advising. And then the last two parts of the academic level are academic and socially supportive residential environments. So the living environment of the LOC needs to be academically and socially supportive. And while that seems sort of uh, like a given, what we have found, at least in the research from the NSLP, is those two aspects, the residential environment being academically and socially supportive, are the two most powerful aspects of the entire model. In fact, they drive pretty much every student outcome you can think of. If your LLCs don't have a supportive academic and social environment, it tends to really weaken the community overall. Okay, almost done. So the co-curricular level rests on top of the academic level. The best co-curricular activities are the ones that are theme-related. So if you have a French house, you should be doing French-related activities. But <clears throat> if you have a community service house, you should be doing community service-related activities, et cetera. There are, however, other co-curricular activities that stretch across different types of living learning communities that we found have been particularly uh, effective, and those include study groups, outreach to K-12 schools, career workshops, and visiting work settings. Finally, the top level is what we call the pinnacle. And that's the extent to which all the other components of the best practices model are integrated with one another. So it's not good enough just to have an LLC with all the blocks in the model satisfied. They need to be integrated with one another. So the course needs to have an idea of what the co-curricular activities are and tries to absorb them into the curriculum. Um, everyone should be aware of what's happening in the residence hall environment, whether those people are academic or student affairs. And the extent to which that collaboration is transparent and the communication is clear and, and well-flowing, that would make for a very strong environment. So finally, the little orange parts that we call the border between the bricks are assessment. And the idea there is you must assess the effectiveness of all the components of your LLC in relation to the program's goals and objectives. So again, the goals and objectives, they drive the entire model. But you should also assess the extent, the extent to which all the components are integrated optimally to maximize impact. So that's a real quick and dirty on the model. If you are more interested in learning more, please do check out our book, which is forthcoming. Uh, should be out, I think, May 2018. Awesome. 
thank you, thank you, Karen. It's nice to see you again as well. Uh, <laughs> I think uh, it's really great to have this this model that it won't be released until May for for higher ed viewers, and we are working on getting that tweeted out. Uh, so thanks for previewing that for us, and something that won't be out for a few months. Um, and I, I, you know, we 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 had some conversations before, and um, and we'll sort of shift to Jody a little bit about delivery, but. I'd love to hear particularly uh, thoughts um, about the adequate resources part mm -hmm. and the best practices part. So maybe <clears throat> maybe we can move that over to Jody and have her her take some of that on. Sure, absolutely. I have the privilege of being able to talk about what this model might look like in practice. And one of the really important things that we wanted to convey is that this model isn't based on one living learning community, that there's various aspects of living learning communities that um, we were able to pull together to um, talk about the ideal community. And, you know, even long established, well functioning communities might look at the best practices model and find areas that they can shore up their communities or fledgling communities might be able to look at um, the best practices model and figure out ways to bolster the foundation of the community. So, but I'm gonna talk about what we saw in practice um, throughout all of our research, both the NSLLP and then research that um, I've done with colleagues and that Mimi's done with colleagues. So um, using that framework of the best practices model, um, I wanna start with the infrastructure, which is obviously as Karen uh, highlighted, the, the goals and objectives. And one of the studies that we highlighted in the book um, was the creation of a brand new residential college, which I like to call a living learning community on steroids and that it's really well resourced. Oftentimes there's faculty appointments within the residential college um, and the um, academic and co-curricular aspects are um, put together really seamlessly. And uh, when we examined that residential college's um, birth, basically, we found that many of the um, players uh, who came together um, in support of that college did so before the college was even conceived, that they were talking about how to improve liberal arts education at the university and um, what mechanisms they might um, utilize in order to do so. And, and from those conversations is when the residential college idea uh, emerged. And once that emerged, there was a lot of discussion with faculty, um, with student affairs partners, and with students about what um, undergraduate education, liberal arts education could look like. And that's what, from the, those conversations is where the goals and objectives were really um, started to get solidified. After that, when faculty were hired into the residential college, those goals and objectives were revisited so that those faculty would feel like they were part of the residential college and the shaping of the residential college. And then once the residential college actually opened, students were able to give um, input into those goals and objectives. And so with that um, cornerstone of clear goals and objectives, really everyone knew and everyone was working in the same direction about what those objectives were and um, how they might be achieved. And um, with regard to the academic and residential life or housing partnerships, which is another aspect of that infrastructure um, level, um, I was in a seminar about, gosh, maybe eight years ago at this point with Aaron Brower, who is the co-PI on the NSLLP with Karen. And he was giving a presentation on what makes an academic affairs residential life partnership work. And one thing that he said has struck it struck me at the time and has really stayed with me, um, you know, until today, so almost 10 years later. And that was that 
in an effective residential life academic affairs partnership, each player has to bring something to the table that otherwise wouldn't be there. And so if we think about our living learning community, um, we must have faculty who bring something to the table, oftentimes their disciplinary expertise, and residence life folks or, or student affairs folks come to the table with their expertise on student development, with their expertise on um, organizational theory. And once both those partners are um, at the table together, each has to really value the other's contribution. And so with that infrastructure model, having that value is um, important as well. And then moving on to what Keith alluded to before with the resources, um, it always strikes me when I see an LLC that's resourced like a traditional residence hall. It's like we want you to be something greater, um, but we're not going to give you the resources to do that. And um, when we were in conversation yesterday in preparation for this, um, Karen mentioned it like an unfunded mandate. Um, and we really uh, believe through the best practices model, we want to convey that additional resources for living learning communities are really important. And those might be fiscal resources that um, can be um, distributed so that uh, you know, the community can build community, like uh, go on retreats and different things like that. It might be resources um, for smaller academic classes or for a faculty person uh, buyout so that they can teach in the community. Um, but those resources are, are really, really valuable. So moving up to the academic environment, obviously I can't get into everything that we cover in the book, but I do wanna highlight two things. One would be that faculty involvement is critical. I think Karen made that point. Um, what we saw in our research is that that um, you know, in addition to faculty teaching classes in the living learning community, they were aware that they, it was a living learning community and they did things differently in their uh, pedagogy in order to support the living learning community. And so they might um, refer to the co-curricular aspects of the community, they might give time for reflection in the community. In addition, um, they might participate in such things as an orientation retreat in co-curricular programming, either as a participant or as somebody who is leading that. And they might have additional seminars or um, uh, other things in the halls, like a, a dinner or a, a fireside chat in the residence halls. And so the faculty involvement, um, I think oftentimes with residence life, there's an inclination that, that that they don't want to bother faculty. And so what will happen is that they'll design all the elements of the community and then you know try to get a faculty member involved. And really, in order for uh, the community to be effective, faculty need to be an integral part from the beginning and give input on how their involvement might um, shape the community um, throughout. And then finally, looking at that academically and and socially supportive environment that Karen mentioned was so important. Um, the physical infrastructure of the community can do a lot to convey that academic support. Um, you know, in one of the studies that I was a part of, um, students talked about the study spaces in their residence hall, and they referred to one um, that was well known in the community as the morgue. And that that um, study space was one where complete silence was um, expected. And another one, and this, by the way, was a, um, was a sciences living learning community. And another one was more social. And so that tradition of, of the silent morgue and the, the social space kind of got passed down from um, class to class. Um, there's also other examples of the physical infrastructure that can communicate academic value. Um, one community we saw had an art gallery in their, in their dining hall that was um, managed by the students and also um, 
portrayed uh, student artwork. Um, certainly well-stocked study rooms, study rooms that convey a seriousness of study. And then, you know, um, uh, having um, office hours or having study sessions with TAs or with faculty in the community are all indicators of an academically supportive climate. Or environment, and then as far as the socially um, supportive um, climate, really making sure that students have plenty of avenues and agency to get involved in their communities and to shape it in ways that are aligned with those clear goals and objectives. And so again, bumping down a level to the infrastructure that students are aware of the goals and objectives in community in the community, and they really feel like they can contribute to it as well. Um, as far as the co-curricular environment um, goes, you know, I, I think that oftentimes this is what's done well with living learning communities is that especially if there's a obvious indication to a theme, um, you know, residence life folks um, really know how to program well and will do so with um, with the community in mind. And so really ensuring that that co-curricular environment gets connected with the academic environment is key. And then like Karen said, um, with the pinnacle that, that the intentional integration across the community is really important. Um, you know, interesting models that I've seen are, are residence directors who do academic advising, um, hall directors who TA in classes, faculty who engage in, in hall activities. And um, certainly those are, those are sort of thinking outside of the box, but, you know, at the very least having, um, having integration opportunities through meetings, you know, inviting faculty to hall meetings or inviting um, uh, hall staff to faculty meetings, those are certainly ways to, um, to organizationally um, align so that that integration happens. And I'll pause there for comments and questions <laughs> because I know I just gave a lot. Yeah, that, that is a lot. So I, I really appreciate this, this framework and we do have the image tweeted out so people can take a closer look and examine it and come back to it. But I also really appreciate you sharing some of those key components and also some examples. And I guess what I'm hearing is a little bit of, um, we kind of got to do all these things well from, from funding it to real collaboration between faculty and student affairs folks to creating sort of the social environment and integrating all of that together. Um, and, you know, I think many of the people who are watching this now, my guess is, are a part of living learning communities, are starting living learning communities, designing that. So I, I really appreciate Jody sharing some, some examples. I love the idea of a morgue, <laughs> particularly for a science-focused living learning community. That, that sort of fits. Uh, might be scary for others, but maybe it, was, uh, it sounded like a great place to focus to me. Um, but I just like to invite our viewers to, if you have examples of some of these things that we're talking about, please tweet them out, you know, uh, add links or, you know, we call it this, or we've had real success with this. I think people uh, would love to share uh, some of the successes there. Um, so we've kind of talked a little bit about uh, defining and what makes a living learning community and kind of this this pyramid, which provides this great structure. Jody's, Jody's given us a lot of detail about how we can actually do that. We're going to turn it over to Matt now. And uh, how do we know what works? What what does work? Does it work for who? And, and maybe what are the assumptions we have about living learning communities that maybe aren't quite as accurate according to to the current data that we have? Yeah, thanks, Keith, and thanks to my colleagues for uh, setting a beautiful framework for introducing some ideas around assessment and thinking clearly about what kind of um, participation in these experiences, what that might lead to in terms of student outcomes. I should say that most of my comments are based on the recent volume of How College Affects Students, 
And that is an overview of all the empirical studies from 2002 to 2013 um, that looked at a variety of different collegiate experiences and their effects on different outcomes, including everything from content mastery all the way to persistence, uh, which of course leads to uh, degree attainment, economic mobility, and quality of life indicators far beyond graduating from undergraduate uh, college. So um, a lot of my comments come from that, as well as being, uh, like I said earlier, the director of something we're calling ACREA, which is the Assessment of Collegiate Residential Environments and Outcomes. It sounds like a Harry Potter spell, ACREO or something like that, but just <laughs> keep it in mind. Um, so a lot of that, uh, what I have to say, comes from that data. And if you don't mind, Keith, I'm going to go back and forth with some of my initial reactions to what my colleagues said, too. That's to great. This think it through out loud. Um, one thing I really appreciate about my colleagues is th that they're putting all this information together in a way that um, can really give people access to a working definition. Um, and that's really good. It's a great as a starting point for thinking about these issues. One thing we have learned in our research is that students oftentimes have no idea that they're living in a living learning community when they actually enroll or they choose a residence experience that has a living learning community in it. Um, some of the institutions that participate in the study give us the sample and they say, this sample of students, they actually live in an LLC. And when we ask students, do you live in an LLC? They say no. Um, but they are able to identify the fact that there is an academic component and they have access to a faculty member who lives in the residence hall and all of those other constituent parts that my colleagues spoke to. But I think it's absolutely fascinating um, that some of the students who are a part of these communities or a part of these experiences don't even know that they're in them. So again, that gets back to the, the really importance of not only having clear objectives, but having the community educators articulate those objectives right away. Here's where you are. Um, here's what we hope you're going to learn as a result of this experience. This is why this experience is on your, this particular campus. Here's how this campus has nuanced this experience based on this campus's institutional mission. All of that clarity up front, I think, is super important for students to really take advantage of the very experiences that they're in. And what's most important, or not most, but very important to thinking about learning communities as well, is that a lot of the students who present at colleges and universities for the first time, meaning first-gen students, and maybe students from lower socioeconomic narratives, um, participating in these living communities actually have pronounced effects on their learning in terms of critical thinking and on their ability to persist, persist from one year to the next. And I think that's super important. So if students don't know they're living in these communities, and oftentimes first-gen students don't have the navigational capital to even understand what they are to begin with, what is the role of college and university educators in extending our reach maybe into high schools or into the counseling spaces where high school students are learning about colleges for the first time in saying, these are some of the experiences that we have on our campuses. You should really think about taking advantage of these while you're on college campuses and here's why. Okay, so that is some of my initial kind of reaction to what my colleagues were saying. It doesn't necessarily dive into the assessment but piece, but I tend to go rogue anyway. Um, well, let me so, interrupt so you that, there, Matt, because yeah, I want to ask about that. I, um, yeah, go ahead. So it, it totally makes sense to me that people would be, students would be part of living learning communities and not know that they're part of living learning communities, which begs me the question, does it matter? If they're getting all of these other components, if they're getting the integration, if they're, they're getting the co-curricular, if they're getting the academic, does it, does it matter if they know that they're part of a living learning community or is that just a bonus? And then 
the, the second part of this is I, I'm really intrigued by it. It sounds like these uh, intentional environments uh, really matter to the marginalized, that they really have a bigger impact to those who maybe come uh, from first generation, lower socioeconomic backgrounds. Um, and do we, do we have a sense about why that is? What's a part of that? Um, I was, yeah, so to the first part of your question, I, I don't know if there's empirical research to suggest that knowing about them versus not knowing about them has a prof profound effect, but I'd ask you this, um, does having a syllabus for a class matter? Does the first class um, a student takes with any sort of faculty member to articulate the objectives of that course matter? Um, does the assessments tied to the objective of the course and the readings and all that coming, uh, presenting a coherent package to students, does that matter, right? So I would, I would argue yes, although I haven't seen that broken down uh, empirically either. But so for the same reasons that I think articulating clarity around, you know, a classroom experience is important, I would, I would also suggest it's equally important, if not even more important for living learning communities, because that tends to be an experience that there is no script and students might not even understand what they're in. And they may not understand that they have access to faculty in maybe ways they don't or they're not familiar with or access to these or access to these experts in the field of practice who they might just see um, or think about stereotypically as folks who are policing um, their residential experience. So I think, again, being clear is always uh, a, a decent idea uh, for any designed educational experience. Um, so I think I think that that gets kind of to the first point. The second um, is uh, I don't want to mislead folks to make, make them think that um, participating in these experiences have uh, like a better effect for students first gen and students from lower socioeconomic narratives, they have a compensatory effect. So it's one of those situations where students from those narratives, they, they, they participate in these communities, whether they know it or not, and they're able to do just as well or catch up maybe with some of the students who, who are from more majoritized narratives. Um, so I think that that's kind of an important piece and that came out in the book. Um, what also came out in the book was some uh, living learning communities were very effective at these outcomes in terms of learning and persistence and others were not. And that happened a lot with what we're calling, and I'm putting quotes up here on purpose, high impact practices, right? Um, where did that term come from? Where was that norm designed? How did it come out of the extent research base? Um, you know, all of those questions are really important. And so I think what the book is really trying to get across is it's not so much about a high impact practice that it is about the highly impactful educator or practitioner, if you will. Right. What is that person doing in terms of framing the experience? How is that person thinking about that uh, in terms of the curriculum they're offering through that experience? And back to my original charge here, the assessment of participation in that experience. And so I think best assessment practice in this space um, oftentimes finds a sweet spot between being able to think, OK, what are the learning objectives? How do we measure those effectively? Um, is there a comparison group that we can follow uh, for students who do participate in the living learning community and those that do not, so that we can actually say that participation in, in said community is having an effect over and beyond just getting older? Um, you know, those are complicated design issues that if you don't plan for, you can't get to. And so just all, all of a sudden doing this last minute kind of, oh gosh, was this effective? Was the food good? Was the presentation clear? All that kind of stuff. 
while it might be important for some um, certain outcomes or, or thinking about some things, it's not an, an, an effective assessment strategy for really diving into what these programs can actually do and what is particularly nuanced about participating in a living learning community versus participating in just a residence hall or living off campus or just growing older. So I'd say a longitudinal design is very important. If you can find a comparison group, that is very important as well. And if in fact, you know, it is important to get the feed in from faculty and the, the, the staff who are part of this, we might need to think about a 360 view of assessment in light of living com learning communities and the definitions that my esteemed colleagues put out there. Like we need to understand how faculty in those programs are envisioning their role and responsibilities within them and how the educators and the staff and student affairs are doing that as well as what the students are actually experiencing. Can I respond to a little bit about what Matt just said? Please, please, that'd be great. Um, one of the things I was thinking about is the, is um, Matt's point about a comparison group. And it's really difficult with living learning communities, especially with students who are choosing to live in them, to find a comparison group, because sometimes those students are just different. And so if, if there isn't a comparison to be had, that doesn't mean that assessment isn't important. Let me restate that with no negatives in it. Assessment is still important, even if there's no comparison group. And the reason for that is that you, that um, when you do assessment of living learning communities, you can discover things about the community that you're assuming are going on that might not actually be going on. And I'm thinking about a study by um, Brad Cox and Ora Hovec that looked at a residential college and faculty student interaction. And what they found in their study was that um, having a residential college and having faculty engagement in a residential college wasn't sufficient to um, really encourage um, faculty student interaction. That, that those students who were the most engaged certainly um, were uh, engaged with faculty, but the vast majority of students were not engaged. And so by doing assessment, um, there's ways to discover that. And, and it goes back to Karen's point as well, is that oftentimes with these living learning communities, it's first and second year students who might not know how to engage with faculty in meaningful ways and haven't really, um, you know, haven't picked that up in college. And so um, by doing assessment, you can realize, you know, where, what, where your assumptions are, where your assumptions are being met, where they're not being met, and then um, really uh, change the community in order to um, ensure that the outcomes that you are expecting from the community can be made. Great, thanks for clarifying that. I, I wanna see if Karen wants to jump in here with thoughts uh, before I circle back around to Matt. Oh, I'm brimming with thoughts. <laughs> <laughs> so <clears throat> to add on to what Jody was talking about for, for comparison groups, that is really hard. Um, two, two things for all of you out there who are listening. If you are lucky enough to have the kind of community that you have more applicants than you can take, then the ones that you don't uh, are not able to admit to your living learning community are a beautiful comparison group because they had the motivation to begin with to want to be a part of your community, they just unfortunately weren't allowed to be part of it. Um, because probably the biggest problem with comparison groups and living learning communities is the motivation factor. Um, so that's covered if you've got, it's called the waitlist control group. If you have such a thing, they are just who you're looking for. Um, if you don't have the luxury of a waitlist control group, then the next best thing is if there are, and there should be, unless your entire campus is living learning, um, other students living in residence halls who don't, 
participate in living learning community. While you may, may not be able to address the motivation factor, you can still look to see if the characteristics of a subset of those resident, regular residence hall students have the same rough characteristics of the ones in your community. So balanced by gender, race, ethnicity, first-generation status, as well as academic characteristics, high school grades, SAT scores, things like that. Um, and, it, you know, there will be no perfect comparison group because this is not a true experiment. We can't randomly assign people. But you can get as close as you possibly can. And the fact that you tried is probably better than not trying at all. <laughs> <laughs> so that's that's the the part about the comparison group. I want to go back to what Matt tantalizingly dangled in front of us <laughs> about the is it still okay to have people in the living learning community don't even know that they're in it? Don't they benefit it? Uh, I guess that was key to the question in that. And I can actually see two possible explanations, which are both positive and negative. So the one about you need to know what that you're in a community is. One of the strongest outcomes that we saw in the research we did on living learning communities, the students who participated in LLCs had a very strong sense of belonging to their institution. That the fact that they were in that living learning community made they feel like they were part of a larger fabric that was their university. And that was absolutely instrumental to their persistence. Um, it's hard for me to believe that a student could have that strong a sense of belonging and not even know they're in a living learning community. Mm -hmm. It seems to me they they have to resonate with something in that community, and they must know that they're a member of it in order to benefit by it. But on the flip side, I I there were also people in my study who didn't know they were in a living learning community, even though housing and residence life insisted that they were. And in those cases, what we found is there was some sort of osmosis effect that the fact that they were in that community and everything that they needed was at their doorstep. They didn't even have to cross the street to get advising or to get help uh, studying or get tutors or whatever it is that the living learning community provided them, uh, did help them, even if they didn't necessarily know why they're, they're benefiting. They just maybe thought they hit the jackpot and happened to live in the residence halls that had in-house advisors. <laughs> they did, but nevertheless, they still did benefit by them. Uh, so, you know, I could see that answer going both ways. Yeah, it makes me think about, um... You know, first-year students, uh, e even if uh, they're they're not first-gen students, don't really know what college is supposed to be. So they show up, and whatever they get is they just assume that's what everybody does at this campus and other campuses. So um, I could certainly see sort of uh, whatever they experience is normal, and maybe sophomores is maybe a little bit different. Matt, I want to circle back to you. You said another tantalizing thing that maybe we'll get you to delve into. Uh, there was already a, already a tweet appreciating you going rogue early, so we love that. Uh, you mentioned the fact that high impactful practitioners is better than high impact practices. Go on. Oh, anytime you want me to talk about this, <laughs> I am happy to do it. So um, in the book, a lot of times we talk about the weight of the evidence, right? The weight of the evidence suggests that participation in, say, study abroad is effective in promoting critical thinking among undergraduate students, right? One thing we found when we combed the literature was there were some study abroad experiences that were very influential. There were others that weren't. Um, sometimes when you participate in um, sorority and fraternity life, there are positive outcomes associated. Sometimes there aren't any outcomes and sometimes there are neutral or to negative outcomes, right? So you have to, and this is cutting across the board of all the experiences. There's no silver bullet experience, which makes me question the high impact practices. What, what makes it high impact to begin with? And I think that it's, a, it, it's, it's thinking about who's designing that learning environment and who's a part of it. And if you have an effective educator 
um, in the co-curriculum and one uh, who is traditionally on the faculty road or whatever that means. And they're coming together and being thoughtful and intentional about designing that environment and making sure that the elements of that environment, whether it's academic coaching or academic advising, whether it's social experiences tied to some theme, have some design to them and have some purpose and that purpose is grounded and the educators are effective at extracting student reflections about those experiences. That's what seems to matter, whether you're in a living learning community or a study abroad program or what have you. You can't just have students go on, take, a, do these experiences and just hope that they work. And you can't just expect, there are gonna be some experiences that do, some that don't. Some are actually negative. We're learning that now from more nuanced research in terms of the students participating in diversity courses. Some participation in diversity courses have very profound effects, others do not. So you have to ask yourself, what's going on within those courses? Who's educating uh, the students within those courses? Do those folks have um, experience um, in, in helping students navigate productive relationships across race differences. Those kinds of questions emerge and we have to ask those questions too of our educators within these specific experiences like the living learning communities we're discussing today. Yeah, you're reminding me of, uh, we, we see, we're always looking at differences between institutions, large institutions, small private schools, liberal arts experiences, that there's there's lots of evidence that there's more, in, uh, more diverse uh, outcomes within those institutions than across those institutions. And you're sort of pointing that out there. There could be more difference within uh, a living learning community than across living learning communities or study away or these different things. Um, the other thing you're reminding me of is this notion that, you know, when we're designing these things and then we implement them and then we assess, and if the assessment says it wasn't great, was that a problem with the design or was that a problem with the implementation? Did we, did, is this a bad idea or did we do it really poorly? Mm -hmm. Uh, and if do we just need to learn our lessons and explain it better the next go around, or is this something that's just not effective and we shouldn't do? And, and that calls on us to do, um, again, more nuanced assessment that can help point us in that direction. So can I interrupt at this point and add, I, I, I like to say that high impact practices are the best and the worst thing that ever happened to higher ed. <laughs> so that in terms of the best thing, it gives institutions a roadmap, at least a place to start as to what types of programming and interventions they might consider for their campuses. I think the worst thing about that is, it, it, intentionally or unintentionally, I'm not quite sure, but it, it leads campuses to believe that all you have to do is go out to the living learning store and buy yourself a living learning community, plop it down on your campus and wonderful things are going to happen. Uh, I mean, obviously that's not the case, but it, it does lend itself to make institutions believe that all you need to do is make a capstone course and all is well, or all you need to do is just get professors to work with students on research and, and wonderful outcomes will ensue. Uh, and that's not really true. I think that's where Jody and I and Matt and Mimi started because what we look at are living learning communities. And what we wanted to say is it's more than that, that there are actually elements that we've learned from the course of our own work and our own research that make for effective um, communities. And that's how we came up with a model. What we would really like to advocate is that everybody think about that for the, the other high impact practices as well. We're just talking about the living learning communities. Right. And if I can go out on a limb, I might say, to answer your question, Keith, use our model. And if your assessments come out saying, eh, things didn't go exactly as we thought, but you followed the model, then it might be in the execution, not in the design itself. Right. 
Jody, I, I want to pull you a little bit off script. Uh, you've done all this work on living learning communities, uh, but I believe that you're currently on sabbatical with an architecture firm. Is that right? I am uh, just finishing my sabbatical. Yeah. Yes. So I'm really interested as we talk about the key components about you know having a study space called the morgue or different structures, different things. What is it that that you're pulling from what you're learning about living learning communities in those spaces, and what are you learning about how people are designing? Mm -hmm. office spaces or other living communities that um, that you're thinking maybe has some potential here, particularly for those practitioners who are thinking, should this living learning community be in suites or apartments, should it be in a traditional hall, some of those things. And any insights that are that are just coming from your recent experience? Yeah, that's a great question. So I just spent a semester at Workshop Architects, which is a um, architect firm that focuses um, most prevalently on the design of college student spaces. They've done some work on unions. They've done some work in residence halls, and they're um, about to do some work in, or actually they're doing some work in uh, wellness centers as well. And one of the things that I've really taken away from my experience there is that the design of physical spaces is often a social design process. In other words, that that these um, the folks with whom I've been working really think about how students are going to use the space and really um, engage students in um, in a process of discovery in, in how both discovery for both the students and for um, those involved in the design process in how they how they envision the space. And so um, the firm uh, takes a lot of care in getting to know students and and um, designing spaces for those students. And so one thing I didn't realize before I started it at the firm was, was um, the importance of the human aggregate in the design of buildings, that, that, it, that the student population really matters to um, the design. And so when we taking um, that sort of concept of human aggregate and design to a living learning community and um, adding in what Karen said is that you just can't buy a living learning community and plop it down. Um, really understanding what students' needs are and um, in a community and designing the community for those needs is really important. And, and certainly it's not always the case that a living learning community um, at its inception can you know, involve the redesign of a building, but are there ways to listen to students' needs, listen to students' desires, and then, um, you know, find aspects of the uh, physical infrastructure that can, you know, be repurposed for a living learning community. So I think about um, our research as an example. Um, one of the communities that we looked at, um, there, it, in the basement of that community was a large rec room. And what students said that they needed was you know, space to do their projects. And so what um, the director of that community ultimately did was kind of create a, a maker space in the community for those students. And it really revitalized that community because not only could students you know, come together in their passions and talk in their residence hall rooms, but then they could go downstairs stairs and and have this maker space um, so that they could you know do bookbinding and other things like that um, that they were interested in and so the physical infrastructure can oftentimes facilitate um, connections in, in ways that otherwise wouldn't be possible yeah I'd like yeah. to add to that too um, so I also consult with an architectural firm I didn't know that you were doing that Jody that's pretty cool <laughs> <laughs> takes you know it takes doing one of these to figure these things out about each other. I know right <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, I want to just echo something that Jody said. I think it's really important because everybody knows residence hall space is at a premium and, and square foot.
footage is valuable. You can't just have open spaces that don't have any purpose. That's not useful or cost effective. And so one of the great lessons that I've learned working with the architects that I work with is having reconfigurable spaces with movable furniture that can be configured in different formats is absolutely critical. Uh, and think very creatively in this. So it's not just, you know, you have a study space that could turn into a TV lounge, which can turn into a maker space, which could turn into a rec room if necessary, just by moving around a couple pieces of furniture, which also is very important. You know, that old bolt the furniture down so no one can steal it is not going to be really useful for a reconfigurable space like this. <laughs> but nevertheless, the idea would be, you know, if you can only have one or two spaces that are open and not used for residential space, then make it multifunctional and multi-purpose. That includes things that are traditionally and we always stand alone like a dining room. It doesn't just have to be a dining room. It can also be a performance space or a space for large gatherings or a graduation space or anything like that if it's designed in a, such a way that it can be repurposed for the reasons. That was probably the greatest takeaway that I took. Well, this is an interesting connection, but I remember Beverly Daniel Tatum, the former president of Spelman College, talking about when she was at Mount Holyoke, turning their chapel into uh, a multi-face space. They did a lot of things to try and do that, but the best thing they did is remove the bolted down pews. Yes. And that really allowed things to open up and change and flex your pointing to that. I would also encourage folks who are looking at residence hall space or even student, student union and campus center space to really look at what folks who are doing co-working uh, spaces mm -hmm. are doing. You go to these co-working spaces, they put tons of research and evaluation and assessment into what people like and what works and what doesn't work, and and, and none of them have bolted down <laughs> furniture. It's all flexing and moving. Uh, but I, I, f I found that to be a really interesting uh, place to get some ideas. We've just got a couple of minutes left, and we kind of want to get um, a little nugget from each of you based on you know writing books and multiple research studies and 20 years of, of, of all of this. Uh, for someone who's about to kick off or, or maybe now planning to launch a new living learning community in the fall, what would be your best piece of advice? So Jody, what's the best thing you could suggest to that practitioner who's about to take this on? Absolutely. Um, you know, it really strikes me that those goals and objectives, there's a reason that they're in that first level of our model. They are really crucial in order to ensure that everything else aligns um, in the model. So making sure that folks spend time on the goals and objectives, get faculty involved early, make sure that faculty and res life housing folks are around the same table for an extended period of time as they start to launch the community. And then finally, you know, knowing each knowing what the other is doing and each valuing what the other is doing as well. Awesome. Matt, any suggestions for that practitioner who's about to really launch this in the fall? Yeah, start now. I, I think you, know, <laughs> you have to think about the planning aspects of all of this and that model is, is, is really useful and it's also complicated because of all the moving parts and all the people who would be involved in pulling off a successful community. And that's not easy work. And I find that sometimes we get so busy in the daily of what we're doing, we don't take a lot of time and space for ourselves to plan what's next. And I think getting the right stakeholders on board is very important. Um, getting an assessment plan together is very important based on the state of objectives. And really critical to this is what do you do with the assessment uh, data once you're done with it? Do you get it back to the students? And how do you do that? Um, do you get it in the student newspapers? Do you get it in front of faculty, in front of educators, in front of the provost, in front of the president? There might be different marketing strategies for how you make use of data um, with regard to this and other experiences. But that takes planning. And so I would get going right now. 
Great, Karen. You want to close us out with any uh, words of wisdom or inspiration? Sure. And first, I echo both what Matt and Jody said. I think they gave excellent advice. Um, what I would probably leave you with is it's not really important to worry about the bells and whistles or the frills or whatever the newest fad or shiny dangly toy is. So, you know, will that be a climbing wall or a 24-hour cafe or whatever it is that you think you're going to have to have in order to make your living learning community attractive uh, and interesting to students. What's most important is that you hit those best practices and you do those well and that they integrate well with one another. And in the end, that's what builds a strong program. Well, thank you all three of you so much. Uh, and we made it through the whole thing with very little Michigan-Ohio State uh, battles going back and oh, forth. We have four minutes, Keith. Come on. We have, we're going to keep moving. We're going to keep moving. So thank you to our guests today. And thank, as always, to our program sponsors. Please join us for future episodes. You can learn more about these and other episodes by subscribing to the Higher Ed Live newsletter. You can also review past episodes by browsing the archives at higheredlive.com or subscribe to our iTunes podcast. Please join host Tony Duty next Wednesday, January 17th, for Integrating Well-Being into Campus Life with guests Pam Watts, Chris Wise, and George Brown. We'll get a link out with that episode. You can find that up. This is my last episode, guest hosting uh, Higher Ed Live for a while. Heather Shea will be back in February. I can hear that chorus of cheers from the Twitter sphere. Uh, my name is Keith Edwards, guest hosting for Heather Shea. Uh, thanks for watching, everyone. We hope you make it a great week. And thanks to our guests for a great conversation.